0: The reading for today's sermon comes from Joshua chapter 24, beginning at the first verse. Hear the word of the living God. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards I brought you out. Then I brought your forefathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt." And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land. And I destroyed them before you. Then Balak the son of Zippor king of Moab arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam the son of Beor to curse you. But I wouldn't listen to Balaam. Indeed he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho and the leaders of Jericho fought against you and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you which drove out those peoples before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of orchards and vineyards that you did not plant. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, give me three loaves of bread that I may have something to set before them, for I have nothing. And your people may not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so speak, we pray, that we may hear you, be nourished and enriched and equipped for the remainder of the journey that you have set before us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please take a seat. I had the distinct privilege a few weeks ago to interview for the All Saints podcast a pastor from Karlovy Vary in the Czech Republic by the name of Pastor Jan Prorok. Some of you may have heard the interview. Karlovy Vary is about 70 miles west of Prague, 10 miles from the German border in the Czech Republic. And I was astonished by what I heard. Pastor Prorok began translating Christian books in 2017. He has, to this point, translated a total of more than 40, including works by John Calvin, Greg Barnson, R.J. Rushdooney, Andrew Sandlin, Doug Wilson, George Grant, and Peter Lightheart. His current projects include Calvin's Institutes, (laughs) the entire Genevan Psalter, and a couple of others. Actually, probably he's already finished them, because it was two months ago when I interviewed him. This guy, he's translating books faster than most of us read them. He's translated one about every eight weeks since 2017. But that's just the beginning. Pastor Prorok runs two websites to make the books available. He's written one book of his own called The Lord Gave and The Lord Has Taken Away. It's a book to uh, minister to people who've lost a young child. He's active in the pro-life movement in the Czech Republic. He's developing a new ministry to support Christian homeschool families, and none of that is his main job. <laughs> He's a pastor. That's his main calling, but that doesn't pay him enough to keep his family. So if he also has a job for money to support himself and his wife and children. Guess what? Translating other things from English into Czech and vice versa, just to put bread on the table. There's not a huge amount of money in pastoring in Vary, it seems. And I was just fascinated and slightly blown away listening to him. I, um, I, and there were the two things that struck me. I mean, the first, I have rarely encountered such a dedicated, hard-working, productive Christian servant in the three decades I've been looking for them. And this guy, he's 10 or 15 years younger than me. He's fast becoming one of my heroes. I, just extraordinary commitment, in a land where really it, it's not like, I mean, I, I don't think there is a Christian congregation this size in the Czech Republic. It's just worth thinking about that, isn't it? But then, the, as I talked to him, and I talked to him a little bit offline, and we went back and forth with emails, I was struck by a second thing. He has this acute consciousness which one finds occasionally in the, in the wisest of Christian servants, of his own weakness and his own frailty and his own sinfulness. And I, I, I forget exactly what he said. It's it, Something like, my biggest discouragement is this dude I have to work with the whole time, namely me. <laughs> and then it, he said something like, this work really should be done by somebody better somebody more worthy. And when I heard that, I just thought, like, okay, this guy is the real deal. CREC pastor in the Czech Republic. I mean, he he gets it, doesn't he? I mean, just just to the side for a moment, he gets Christian ministry. He gets the calling of pastoral ministry. Uh, I have the privilege at the moment of working with a group of other men within the CREC to seek to establish a theological seminary to try and train the next generation of pastors. Very exciting. Um, And uh, more about that in the next few weeks or months, Lord willing. But one of the challenges we have is to try and make sure that we get the right kind of guys. because here it is, a, uh, a nice, steady desk job with no fixed hours and no heavy lifting. Well, no. I think maybe we should get Pastor Prorok over to teach the practical ministry module, because he'd have something to teach us all, I think. But more than that, he he gets the Christian life, you know? He gets this it's a daily battle with sin, it's a daily battle against my own weakness, it's a daily battle against my own feelings of inadequacy, and I, I don't get to be a victim and feel sorry for myself. I've got a job to do. And and I was just mulling on this, and then I was thinking about this passage, and I suddenly realised, yeah, he also understands Christian eschatology. What I mean is this. It's not just that God is using weak and sinful people. God is using weak and sinful people to build his kingdom. The kingdom of Christ is being built by and out of the raw material for the kingdom of Christ is sinners. Weak, frail sinners his conclusion from his awareness of his own inadequacy is not throw his hands up and just kind of despair but just to confess and repent and get on with the job because God is still building his kingdom in spite of the really quite pitiful raw material he has to work with and once you think about it, it's like, this is so obvious. It's all over the New Testament. How could we have missed it? Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How do you enter the kingdom? Oh, Acts 14 tells you. We are fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8. This is heirs of the kingdom, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. I can't imagine how dispiriting it must be, how discouraging it must be. In some of the tasks that he and many, many other Christian servants like him, labor. I mean, thinking of the Christian ministry in particular, 1 Thessalonians 3, we kept telling you beforehand that we had to suffer affliction. 2 Timothy 1, share in suffering, Paul says to his young apprentice, Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, this saying is trustworthy. This is a more general saying that Paul directs at all the people in all the churches. If we've died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure with him, we will reign with him. Who are the people who get to reign? Who are those out of which the kingdom is built? Those who die. Those who endure. Those who pastor a church of less than 20 people in a little town you'd never heard of till 10 minutes ago in the Czech Republic, laboring night and day to make the gospel known to this tiny handful of people. I think of Paul's words. In 1 Corinthians 9, I wear out my body, literally, he says. I wear out my body and make it my slave, so that after having preached to others, I may not be disqualified for the prize. And I want to talk about this eschatology theme today. Previously in um, Joshua, I have um, introduced you to my own eschatological stance and that of the session here and at All Saints, which is known as post-millennialism. Just a reminder for those of you who are just tuning in, uh, a formal definition of post-millennialism might run something like this. Christ will return in glory only after, that is, post, the millennium. The millennium is a, a long period of time, not a literal millennium, a literal thousand years, but a figurative thousand years, a long period of time, which we're now in. It began with Christ's ascension and uh, resurrection and ascension and, and in exaltation at the right hand of God. And during this time, during this long period of time, the gospel is spreading. During this long period of time, the church is growing. During this long period of time, with ups and downs all over the place, societies and indeed nations are being transformed. And the kingdom of God is growing like a seed that produces a harvest 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. It's growing like the yeast that's part of the, or the leaven actually, because it's sourdough, part of the dough that then spreads and fills the whole loaf It's growing like a rock that becomes a mountain that fills a whole earth so that habakkuk chapter 2 the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea and then first corinthians 15 the end will come when the lord jesus returns in glory to a world that is waiting eagerly for him that is a uh, concise if somewhat impassioned uh, statement of post-millennial theology now that has a whole bunch of implications which we've explored in the last few weeks as we've been looking at the book of joshua chapter 10 my little introduction to post-millennialism. The kingdom belongs to Jesus and it's given to the saints. And it grows gradually. You remember how Joshua works. Joshua tells the story of the people of Israel conquering the land that God had gave, given them as their inheritance. And so it informs us as the church of our mission as those who follow the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus, to conquer our inheritance Romans 4, he's given us the world as his inheritance. And so Joshua is like a blueprint for how the church should expect history to proceed, gradual growth of the kingdom of Christ. Then chapter 11, which I somewhat tongue-in-cheek described as intermediate-level post-millennialism, nations rise and fall. Maybe, perhaps likely, Western civilization must die so that like christ death and resurrection it can be raised again maybe much as we love our nations they like we must die so that they can be raised glorious in 400 generations time god's got many generations left he hasn't had a thousand generations to show mercy to his people yet give him time That's what we mean by gradually you see and then chapter 15 advanced level post-millennialism this was kind of tricky but it's really important We're not blank slates. We don't get to operate in a world that's basically kind of pristine, uh, empty, and we get to build the kingdom out of neutral building blocks. Now, what we find all around us, we find the waste and ruin of societies and institutions and nations brought about by sin. And our job is not simply to burn up all the rubble. Actually, some of those things we see around us are good things that have been twisted. And so part of our task is to be wise and discerning and think, okay, are there there things here in art and literature and culture and politics and law and education and every other sphere of human cultural activity which ought to be recaptured and uh, subversively transformed so that they honour the Lord again? And the answer is yes, there are many things because many things we have in us are actually gifts around us, sorry, are gifts from God which have been corrupted, but they're good things which have been corrupted. And so today, so we've had those already going through the book of Joshua, today I thought, just one more time, actually, not really, probably, just one more time, Um, but just one more time for now, in the book of Joshua, post-millennialism, one final word about how the kingdom grows. And I adduce Pastor Prorok as my witness concerning two things, which I want to share with you today which I think will be obvious as soon as you think about him and what the Lord is doing through him, and not to single him out, but through countless others, our forefathers in the faith, and those who live the life of faith with us even now, who demonstrate these two things. First, the Lord is building his kingdom out of and through sinners. Weak, frail sinners. That's the first thing I want to talk about. And then second, we'll get to this in a few minutes' time, the Lord is building the kingdom through our pain and frustration. I want to just share some thoughts about both these themes with you now. So if we might begin with the first of those two observations. The Lord is building the kingdom of Christ, the most glorious thing in creation, all things being subdued for the glory of the one who is the word by which they will brought into being, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, is being built out of sinners, by sinners, weak, helpless, pitiable losers like you and me. And you you remember, if you've been here for any uh, length of time, you remember the last three chapters of the book of Joshua, they bring to a climax the whole book. There are three great gatherings in chapters 22, 23, and 24. This is the the third one, the first one, is all about the, um, the relationship between the Eastern and the Western tribes. You live in unity. Remember the stuff about the altar, all the misunderstandings. Get over that, gentlemen. We need to be friends together. or on the same side. Chapter 23 is all about the idols. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You slay them. Tear them down wherever they are. And then chapter 24 is like it, it's the, the culmination of the culmination. It's a covenant renewal ceremony during which the people of Israel are invited to recommit themselves to the Lord who has ransomed them. And The prologue, you might say, is in the first 13 verses which we just read, and it's a historical overview. It's like a little history lesson, but it's not like a little history lesson. It is the most bizarre history lesson you'll ever find if you're expecting a history of the people of Israel, because look at all the things that aren't there. Scarcely mentions Moses, doesn't mention the giving of the law, doesn't mention the tabernacle. There are some quite big things missing from this, and the reason they're missing, we'll come to that next week. But what is here, what is highlighted is of such significance that what Joshua is trying to do, is trying to get everybody's attention. Like, let me show you who you actually are before we proceed. And to that end, let me recount where you've come from. So if I may, friends at All Saints and visitors who happen to be with us, let me tell you who you are precisely, so that we can get clear what the raw material is that Christ is building with. Verse 2, well, verse 1, let's have a look. I mean, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. Probably it's the eastern tribes as well, um, because of the emphasis on all the tribes to Shechem. Significance of that maybe next week again. I know I'm kicking lots of cans down the road, but bear with me. There's a lot to talk about here. And uh, end of verse two, end of verse one, sorry. They presented themselves before God. And now look at verse two. This is really remarkable. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, and now he's speaking the Lord's word. At one point, In what follows he slips into the third person talking about the lord but basically this is the lord speaking through him thus says the lord the god of israel now addresses you and says long ago your forefathers lived beyond the euphrates Terah, the father of abraham and of nahor oh what wonderful history we have how far back we go how wondrous our heritage and the lord continues end of verse two they served other gods Well, thanks for bringing that up, Lord. Can you see what the Lord is doing? It's like, let's just remember who we are, shall we? Let's just remember who you are, shall we? It's like the best man at a wedding. Some of you have been to weddings, some of you are going to one soon. Just imagine your mother's emotions if, for example, the best man's speech begins with a recitation of all your former girlfriends. I mean, we sort of laugh about it, but it would just be... I mean, maybe the best man would think this is funny, but like this is just not funny. I see, Mrs. Hinsley there, she's like, "Oh, goodness gracious!" <laughs> I mean, obviously, with David, you wouldn't have this long list, obviously, but but can you imagine? And we're not, but we're not mucking around here. This is not. The Lord God of Israel speaks to His people through the mouth of His servant Joshua, assembling every last one of them, and says, "You used to serve somebody else." Oh, <laughs> You know, this, this is such a shock to ancient Israelites. that they, they actually wrote a book to deny this. The Book of Jubilees, which you've you probably not heard of unless you're a, a former Roman Catholic, or maybe still a Roman Catholic, in which case, welcome. Genuinely welcome. But let me tell you about one of the books in your Bible. Uh, the Book of Jubilees in the Apocrypha, which devotes quite a large section to explaining how Abraham wasn't really an idolater and he spent a good amount of time burning his father's idols and tore the temple down. Well, it's not true. The reason that story was concocted is because it's such a humiliation to read this. Abraham, Abraham, our father, served other gods. And again, in verse 14, I mean, it, it, we're not looking at this today, but it, it didn't stop with Abraham when Joshua turns to exhortation in the middle of verse 14 put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Oh, yeah, that'd be a bit closer to us then. And you know from here and from Ezekiel that the people of Israel participated with the Egyptians in their idolatry. That's who you are, sinners. You've got a very pointed reminder of it in the middle of the passage I read. Verses 6 and 7 recount the journey out of Egypt, which we'll come back to in a second. But you notice um, after that, just a little little one-liner at the end of verse 7, it's so striking. What does it say? Look at the end of verse 7. You lived in the wilderness a long time. Well, why would that be? Pop quiz, Israelites. Why did you live in the wilderness a long time? I'll tell you why. Because you sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan, and they came back saying, It's wonderful. The Lord has blessed us. There are bunches of grapes so big, we have to have two people to carry them. Oh, but we can't possibly conquer it because the Lord isn't strong enough to overcome the giants there. And so everyone starts grumbling and complaining, everyone that is apart from Joshua and Caleb. And the Lord says, I mean, you remember the things, what he says in, in Numbers 14? He, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? It's not how long will these people um, exercise their religious longings in a slightly different direction. How long will these people, you know, experiment with a little bit of Zen, No, how long will these people despise me? How long? I'll tell you what, later in the same chapter, 40 years is how long they'll spend in the wilderness while this entire generation dies out. They lived in the wilderness a long time. And so that brings you all down to earth with a bump, doesn't it? You're you're assembled for the great kind of... What a summer camp talk, eh? you've got to go to summer camp this year, kids, because it's going to be awesome. It's always so encouraging. When you go to summer camp, and Pastor Booth will stand up and give the first talk, probably, at Gloria Sanctuary. The summer Sanctus is going to be awesome, and he'll just lambast you, you bunch of idolatrous, God-despising hypocrites. Like, <laughs> how much of my money am I paying for this experience? <laughs> and, and that's just the beginning. That's like we got to the end of verse two. And it carries on, emphasizing not just Israel's sin but their weakness and their inadequacy. You, you notice the, the massive emphasis throughout on the Lord's power, not Israel's. I mean, just look at me at verse three, and I'll read it. And you notice how many, how many times the word "I" appears. It's the Lord, again and again. It's the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. It actually appears more in the Hebrew because the verb has the the first person um, pronoun built into it but I could add it in if you like just to show you where it is verse three I took your father Abraham from beyond the river I gave him Isaac to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir and verse five I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Israel with what I did to it in the midst of and afterwards I brought you out and then I brought your father it just goes on and on and on and on and on You're useless. It's not just that you're sinners. You don't do anything. Can you see what he's saying? How much have you contributed to getting yourselves here? Only the sin that made the redemption necessary. In fact, verses 6 and 7 are really remarkable. If you look with me, I brought your forefathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. Why did they go there? There's a perfectly straightforward route north, which would avoid this kind of blind alley. The reason is because the Lord led them into a place where there was no way out. they got the Egyptian army on the west and they got the Red Sea on the east. There's nowhere to go. So verse 7, what are they going to see? They're going to see their own weakness as the dark backcloth against which the diamond of God's grace and power shines. Look at verse 7. And when they cry to the Lord, well, that's at least they've done something. <laughs> He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them, and your eyes saw what I did. You've seen what I've done, what I did. You see what he says? And the focus on the Lord's actions continues remarkably, even when, in fact, the history in the book of Joshua tells us it was the people of Israel who did what the Lord is said to have done. In verse 8, for example, look at verse 8. I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. This is a a reminder of the episodes in the book of Numbers again with Sihon and Og, the kings of um, some of the Amorite kings. Numbers 21. And Numbers 21 says, Israel fought. And uh, the battle against Sihon, I think it is, it says, and defeated them with the edge of the sword. And then when fighting against Og, it says, they did so in the same way. So you read the narrative in Numbers 21. It looks like the Israelites fought their own battles. Sharp swords, whatever else they got. What does it say here? Verse 8. They fought with you. Very striking. Not you fought with them. They fought with you. So who's fighting for Israel? Look at verse 8. And I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land. And I destroyed them before you. And again, you've got it in verse 11 and 12. You went over the Jordan, came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. In other words, all of the tribes of the land. They fought against Israel. What did Israel do? According to this, nothing. I gave them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you. only mentioned twice before in the, in, the, um, in the Bible, in Exodus once, in Deuteronomy once, if I recall. And it's some maybe it's a literal hornet, could easily be. Um, Some divine intervention brought about by the Lord, I sent the hornet before you. You can fight against soldiers, you can't fight against hornets, you've just got to run away, right? And verse 12, it was not by your sword or by your bow, even when you were wielding a sword, it was not by your sword. Even when you were wielding your bows and your arrows, it was not by your bow and not by your arrows. And then verse 13. I gave you a land on which you had not labored. I gave you cities you had not built. You dwell in them and you eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you didn't plant. And there's was nothing there that you've contributed. And even the things that you were doing, it, actually, it was the Lord doing them. That probably explains verses 9 and 10 as well, which are very, this is a weird thing to include. Just the three chapters from towards the, well, in the middle of the book of Numbers, the episode of Balak and Balaam. Verse 9, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. There we go again. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I wouldn't listen to him. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. What you've got here is a record of a pagan prophet who is hired, basically, basically, to curse the people of Israel. And what are the people of Israel going to be able to do about that? Precisely nothing. So what does the Lord do? He says, no, I'm not having, you bless, not having you cursing my people. And so Balaam tries to open his mouth and the only thing that can come out is blessings. It's just the most wonderful narrative in Numbers 22, 24, where you've got, again, something that's completely out of the power, completely out of the hands of the people of God. And the Lord says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. By the way, this is where you come from. In the 12 verses plus an introduction that recites your history, this is the thing you need to know. Not Moses. Not the Torah. Not the tabernacle. Not the case laws. Not the covenant renewal in Exodus 24. None of that. What you really need to know is you're useless, weak, feeble, sinners. And out of you, verse 13, the Lord is building his kingdom. Out of all of us. Isn't that just... Talk about the weak to shame the strong and the foolish to shame the wise. I mean, you've got a couple of things to chew over, haven't you? I mean, there's a theological point, which is we have to find a way of coordinating our understanding of what we do with our understanding of what God is doing through us. And somehow it needs to make sense of this. I, I think the answer is to say, well, it's not all me. Um, it's, it's certainly not I remain passive. But what it is, is to recognize that every step you take, you're being upheld by the living God. You know that, that footpin, footprints thing that some of you got as like a, a little fridge magnet or something? You know, there are worse fridge magnets than that one. It's not all bad. I remember reading—I've read this many times because I've taught it many times—the great Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Barvink talking about the doctrine of the final judgment, when the Lord uh, raises us and gives to each man according to his deeds. And we talked about this a bit last week. Kind of scary, if it would be scary. If it weren't for the fact that all your sinful deeds are forgiven, but then what about our good deeds? What are the things that by the Spirit? he's made he's made us not as bad as we could have been and Barving says god crowns his own work in us oh, that's just magnificent god crowns in us what he's done in us it's like a mum's dressing her two-year-old for the birthday party or for the wedding or something it's like two-year-olds just being a pain in the neck and dribbling over everything and making a mess of the beautiful pretty dress that's been put on and mum finishes dressing in there there you look wonderful and all you've done is be a pain in the neck for the last hour while i have trying to be trying to dress you and do your hair and everything else and you look wonderful the loving god living god is like that loving mother who crowns what he's done so that kind of theological point there's a past, or a whole bunch of pastoral implications i mean What do you do? What's Israel supposed to do with this? Beset by a recollection of their own inadequacy, their own weakness, their own sin. It's designed to drive them to the Lord. This is followed by an exhortation to faithfulness and by an invitation to renew relationship with God. Come back to him. Don't, Don't be a victim. Yeah, you're a sinner. Of course you're a sinner. Duh come back to the Lord. Return to him. It's not, and it's hard to work out how you process it when you think like a bit more deeply. Are you supposed to say, well, look at Abraham. What, what a train wreck he was. My sin can't, I'm not that bad. My sin doesn't really matter. No, you're not supposed to say that, are we? I mean, we're not supposed to look at Abraham and think at least we're not literal idolaters, so we're not, don't need to worry. Our sin doesn't matter. That's not the issue. I, I wonder if there's a number of different ways it goes. I, Maybe it's a slight rebuke, no, not a slight rebuke, a fairly firm rebuke to the high-achieving Christians. We all know there's no such thing, correct? Very good. Truth is, look, in any community of people, there are some people whom God has blessed with greater Faithfulness, godliness, as far as we can see, productivity, in relation to family life and work and church service and everything. Let's not pretend. Let's not pretend. Like not everybody is Pastor Jan Prorok. Just, just there aren't many pastors like that. Sorry, there aren't many people like that. So, so what do we do? Well, this is a the high achievers are also the offspring of Abraham. Your father was an idolater. You dwelled a long time in the wilderness. There is, a, there is a point at which Scripture speaks sharply even to those who, by God's grace, are doing really well. But It isn't the case, actually, that everybody is struggling with the same sins to the same degree. It isn't. We'll come to those who are struggling more in a second. But to those who actually aren't, you know, it's not actually that bad. Well, maybe, at the very least, there but for the grace of God, you go. It's like... Or let me ask the question another way. Precisely how much of that Christian high achievement are you willing to take credit for? Tell me. No, not out loud. don't need to tell me. But precisely how much? And if the answer's zero, then it, it just does redirect your gaze towards your brothers and sisters in Christ who've been struggling a bit more with kind of things that seem obvious to you, doesn't it? Because the truth is, there are some people who struggle with things that seem obvious to others among us. Basic faithfulness, basic disciplines of life. And how are we supposed to... Well, we're all in the same community, gathered to hear the voice of the same God. The Lord is building the kingdom out of the high achievers? No, I'm not, I'm not seeing that. The, the Lord is building the kingdom out of all of us. I think The challenge is to look back and see the train wreck in all of our past. And just breathe a huge sigh of relief that it's in the past. Now we're done looking back, have we? And we can look forward at the God who still welcomes us. And then verse 13. I gave you. Can you see how verse 13 is a bit different now? I gave you a land you didn't conquer. I gave you cities you didn't build. I gave you vineyards you didn't plant. You. All of you. The weakest and frailest and most regretful, even this morning, among us. He gave you. So let's move on, shall we? Let's... thank you, Lord. And what are we going to move on to, exactly? Well, let me say, briefly, just a couple of things. About the second theme that emerges from this, which is that... (laughs) Unfortunately, the Lord isn't inviting us to move on to a life of ease, a life of uh, let go and let God, a life of your best life now, or any of those trite, ridiculous catchphrases. Because the second thing that shines like a... You can't have a beam of darkness, can you? But brightly from this passage is that the Lord is building his kingdom through the pain and frustration of his people. Look again at verse 3. I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and I made his offspring many. Whoa, whoa, hold on just one second. <laughs> that took me about six seconds to read that. How long did that take to happen? Oh. Depends what you mean by many. But it wasn't overnight, was it? I mean, just look, read on. I gave him Isaac. Oh. Well, that's one. <laughs> I mean, Ishmael, okay. Um but not a child of that covenant. So, okay, one still. To Isaac I gave, drum roll please, Jacob and Esau, another not child of the covenant, so that's one again. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Going well, isn't it, everybody? (laughs) One child, one child. Don't even mention the 12 tribes, not by name, Egypt. Looking pretty bleak, isn't it? How long would that have had to taken to, to live through exactly? Um, probably a century or so? Three generations? And painful, look, ver- Egypt, verse 4. Egypt, for how many years? Just, let that, just think for a second. How many years in Egypt? 400 years of slavery. Let that sink in for a second. 400 years ago, 1623... Oh, that's a long time ago. 400 years in which the the way in which the kingdom of the living God is being built is by his people making bricks without straw for the Egyptians. Maybe we weren't without straw the whole time. It was just some of the time. Maybe 300 years of bricks without straw. Mostly bricks, though. Imagine going back to 1400 BC, and you're looking around the world, you're trying to find the people of God with the, with the help of your your best life now, daily devotion. Who, who are the people of God? Maybe they're those kind of advanced, sophisticated Bronze Age tribes in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Or Spain. I mean, if you go to the British Museum, sorry about this, because we've stolen most of this from everywhere, but there are these beautiful Bronze and gold artifacts from Northern Europe and from the Mediterranean and from about the same time as um, uh, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. You look around. How exactly is God building his kingdom? Just, uh, just a couple more centuries here, I think. Enslaved. What, what would that feel like to live through? You'd have to, you'd have to get used to the fact... If you're going to be faithful, you'd have to get used to the fact that the way that God is building the kingdom of his son is by a process that looks like one long string of catastrophes. Every single day, disaster. You know, there's a quote by Herbert Schlossberg that one of my friends has in his email footer. He, Herbert Schlossberg writes, The Bible can be interpreted as a string of God's triumphs disguised as disasters. Well, I've got to say, sometimes a disguise is pretty good, isn't it? Yes. Now, so you're getting to the end of the book of Joshua. You've had your advanced level post-mill course in chapter 15. This is like the diploma or the passing out exam. Are you ready for this bit? Are you ready for trial? Trial pain, frustration, to be the means by which the kingdom of Christ is built. Why does it have to be this way? Well, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? It's obvious because it's, this is how Christ himself established the kingdom. It was fitting, Hebrews chapter 2, that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through living his best life now. No. Through suffering. 4, verse 18. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus every single Step of the way. A man of sorrows, afflicted by grief. You know, the only thing the whole Bible says about what Jesus of Nazareth looked like. Remember? There's one text of Scripture. It's not even in the New Testament, it's in Isaiah 53. And it doesn't describe him, it describes people's reactions to him. Like one from whom men hide their faces a man of sorrows, afflicted with grief. And through him, and through any of his brothers and sisters who are willing to be like him, God is building his kingdom. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, teach us, we pray, to consider Jesus. And so like him, to be ready to lay down our lives, to fight against sin, to give and to sacrifice for the sake of the world, which he gave his life for. And we pray in his name. Amen.